Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, <clears throat> the privilege, Lord, of having the record of these events. But Lord, we, we need insight, we need discernment, Lord, to, to truly understand what they are all pointing to. And then ultimately, Lord, how they apply to us. And Lord, we ask that this morning as we work our way through this text, that you would give us, Lord, that discernment and give us that understanding. And Lord, we, we ask for your help, but Lord, we also desire to be, to be taught, Lord, and this attitude of teachability, Lord, would you have freedom with your Holy Spirit, not only to, to give us understanding, but Lord, to convict us where we need conviction and Lord, to shape us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I just simply ask as your messenger that I would be faithful to you and to your truth and to your text and that we would be um, encouraged and strengthened and fed, Lord, by the ministry of the word this morning. We ask in your precious and holy name. Amen. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the very famous statement of A.W. Tozer. He says this, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So who is God? What is he like? How does he behave? Is he a fickle God? Does he get angry? Is he fair in his judgments? Does he even care about you or about me? It is interesting to ask people why they reject God. Some people say, well, I think that God is some kind of, a, of an ogre. You know, he's this, this being who simply wants to rain on my parade all the time. He's so full of rules and regulations. How can anyone have fun or even enjoy this life? I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard people talk about Christianity in those terms. Something that God is selfish or an unjust judge who holds people accountable for their sin, only wanting to punish them. That he finds great joy in throwing people into the lake of fire. Well, certainly he does ultimately cast people into the lake of fire. But that is not his delight, except that he is a just God and is meeting out justice to those who have rebelled against him. Others see God as the uniter of all faiths, who loves everyone unconditionally, regardless of one's beliefs and behaviors. And you see that on bumper stickers like coexist that seem to be all over the Bay Area. This idea that God really doesn't have any specific standards except for love and tolerance. Now, friends, when we think or what we think about God is so incredibly important to how we view life and how we live our lives in such a way that we are glorifying God. If we get God wrong, we get the gospel wrong, we get living for God wrong. Now, as we turn to our text today, the question isn't so much, what is God like? But the question is, what is God's chosen king going to be like? 
This has all been about God revealing his king. And so here we have Judah and Israel who are asking themselves the question with this new king, this King David, well, is he going to be like Saul who was self-serving and emotionally erratic and consumed with the defeat of his enemy? Will he be one who lords it over his people with a heavy hand? Will he be ruthless? Will he be be merciful? Will he be driven by selfish ambitions? Will he be a king that uses people even in death to accomplish his own pleasures? Or will he be someone completely different? And you think about the kind of king that these people have had. And you think of the kind of oppression that these people have been under for years. What is this king going to look like? And what is his kingdom going to be like? And so that's what this text is driving at. It's a revelation of what kind of king God has chosen. It's a revelation of what kind of rule will be established in his new kingdom. And ultimately, it will point and paint a picture of the kind of king Jesus is and what his kingdom will be like. And so here's how I want to summarize the, the point of this passage and the, I don't say the theme or the proposition. In the face of opposition, we are to notice the character of our king. Now the reality is, if we had started in chapter 2, after David's lament, beginning with the, the story of Abner. I call this the Abner Chronicles for a reason because it's really one long story that we've divided into three sections and, and each of those sections is driving toward uh, something in this text. The opposition that we find is this. First of all, it's military might. And we ask the question, can military might undermine the fulfillment of God's promises? And the answer was No. Then the next question was this, what about selfish ambition? Can can selfish ambition, man's strong arm and man's taking control of things, can that undermine God actually playing out his promises in the context of this world? And of course the answer is no, it cannot. And now in our text today, we find Joab, who is one of David's key men, his brother even, and he now is going to be responding in revenge toward what David um, does and ultimately what uh, Ahab has done. But the question there is this, will, will even revenge among your own people, a turning against the king among their own people, undermine the promise of God? And it will be another resounding no. And friends, this this gong is something that that we need to hear, that God's promises are sure, that you can trust God's promises, and what he says will happen will happen. There may be times when it seems like God's forgotten or that things have turned so sour that, that, that maybe things are unraveling, but God knows what he's doing. He hasn't forgotten about his people. He is carrying out his promises for his chosen. And so, in the face of opposition, we are to take notice the character of our king. 
Now let's just think a little bit about the structure of this passage. It divides into three little sections. The first one from verses 22 through verse 30, I'm calling Joab's revenge. And it, it ends with this summary statement. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. That's really what that section's all about. Then verses 31 through 37, David's remorse. David's remorse. And we have the summary statement in verse 37. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And then the last section, which really is the driving section, which is the, I want to say the arrow of this whole text, is verses 36 through 39 that I'm calling God's revelation. And what we find in there is a beautiful picture of this king that God has chosen. So Joab's revenge, Joab's revenge. As we look at this, we're going to see the, un- the ugliness of vengeance revealed. And first of all, I want you to notice that, that, that vengeance or revenge is hateful. It is hateful. It hates forgiveness and its fruits. Look at verse 22 and following. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. So they've been out doing what good soldiers do. And Joab, being the leader of the army, was doing what a good soldier should do. But when he comes back from that successful raid with the spoils of war, and here's what David has done, he is livid. Well, what is it that David had done? David had made peace with Abner. Abner, the enemy commander, the one who rebelled against David and established Ishbosheth as king, the one who started a conflict that turned into a, 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 a battle where over 300 men died, the one who in that battle killed Joab's brother Asahel, he is the one that David has sent away in peace. So it's not surprising that Joab is upset with the way things have turned out. And he immediately goes to the king, and you can hear the anger in his words. Verse 24. What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he's gone? And the, 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 the words here are not talking about, you know, you sent him away kind of temporarily. No, you sent him away in peace. And he's gone. He's gone for good. You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in. And now, to know all that you are doing. So Joab is still in his mindset thinking of Abner as an enemy, but David has forgiven Abner, he's made a covenant with Abner, and he has sent him away in peace. And remember who it is that Joab is talking to. He's talking to David the king, and he's speaking to the one who has made this covenant. He's speaking to the one who has granted this forgiveness. He's speaking to the one who has sent him away in this peace. And if he is against the decision of David, then he is in a position 
of rebellion. And he hates what David has done. I think the rest of the story bears that out. How could David forgive such an enemy of the state? How could David forgive such a shedder of blood? How could David forgive the murder of Asahel? So this revenge is hateful. Secondly, it is then rebellious. One thing leads to another here, right? It is, it is willing to rebel against the king and take matters into its own hands. And that's what we find here. If David won't deal with Abner, then Joab certainly will. And he wants revenge for the blood of his brother, Asahel. And he's now willing to take matters into his own hands and in direct rebellion against the king. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, in this passage, we're told here, uh, just the end of verse 26, but David did not know about it. David is not aware of what, what Joab is up to here, completely ignorant of it. But what does he do? He calls Abner back to a particular place, a cistern, from the cistern to the gate here, and he, he wants to speak to him privately, so to speak. He, he pretends, he's deceptive, and in the moment of that deception, he pulls out a knife and he thrusts Abner through and kills him. And it says there, he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. But friends, this is the point. This, this vengeance not only is hateful, it is rebellious. It is unwilling to listen to the voice of the king. And it wants only what it wants and is willing to violate the king's will to get satisfaction. And it doesn't, doesn't even look to the consequences. It just acts. Not only that, we'll find it is self-righteous. It seeks to justify its own actions. Twice we're told in this narrative that Joab killed Abner for the blood of Asahel. The problem is that Asahel's death was not murder because his death took place in the context of battle. And because it took place in the context of battle, it did not require any family vengeance, any, I want to say, proper response. It was a matter of state. And so it needed to be left to be settled by David's um, forgiveness or his covenant or his peace. And that is exactly what he did. David, rather than killing Abner for his rebellion, he makes a covenant with him. He forgives him and he grants him peace. But Joab is self-righteous. He is rebellious. And so he is saying, this is for the blood of my brother. But he's not justified in his actions. And Joab has no grounds for his rebellion. And so that's why we can say quite clearly that this revenge is guilty. It ends up just as guilty as the offender. In basketball, if you're a, if you're a player and you, you know, someone, someone blocks your shot and you get angry with them, so you chase them down and you foul them, the coach will say, listen, two wrongs don't make a right. You're just as guilty by your reaction as you are for the action that was done against you. And this is the case here. Joab, by virtue of his reaction to 
the death of his brother and his unwillingness to listen to the king is guilty. Now listen to how David the king responds to Joab's behavior. Look at verse 29. It says, May the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle. The idea there is this person would be an invalid and so that their vocational skills would be limited. All they can do would be to hold a spindle. Or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. The, the details of this curse matter less than the horror of it. Joab, by his actions, has brought a curse on his family. But the meaning here is really, really clear. May God avenge the murder of Abner upon Joab and his family by punishing them continually with terrible diseases, violent death, and poverty. Now, friends, this is, this is what revenge looks like in this passage. It's hateful. It's rebellious. It's self-righteous. But ultimately, friends, it's guilty. And it will have lasting consequences, and not just consequences for Joab, the consequences for Joab and his family. And so we look at the summary statement, verse 30. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. That doesn't mean that they were right to do it. That's just telling us what they did and why. Now notice David's remorse. Notice David's remorse. And here we find the beauty of forgiveness revealed. It is, first of all, a forgiveness um, that forgives wickedness unconditionally. And we need to think through this a little bit. In order to see David's behavior, we dip back into the, the previous text, and there we see in verse 22, and, and, and moving on here, that uh, when David meets with Abner, he forgives him, he makes his covenant, and he sends him away in peace. So over and over in those verses, we hear the words, Abner has gone in peace. You've sent him away so that he is gone in peace. Now, it's true Abner was guilty of being an enemy of David. It's true that he did set up Ishbosheth as a false king over Israel in an act of rebellion. It is true that he had started the war against David's servants. It is true that he had been a leader of the opposing army uh, over that, that long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. All that is true, but David had forgiven him. And he stands by that forgiveness. His covenant with Abner remains true. And his peace is the fruit of the mercy and grace that is in his heart. This was not just some kind of diplomatic thing that David did. This was genuine. This was real. When he forgave, it meant something. And he was standing by it. So Abner doesn't deserve David's kindness, but still he receives his mercy and grace. And David has sent him away in peace out of that grace. Now, friends, that's the nature of God's forgiveness, isn't it? He takes those who are enemies and makes them his friends. He takes those who have committed great rebellion and restores them to a place of being at peace with him. Now, hear this. 
even the Abners of this world are not too far from God's forgiveness. Now, we have difficulty with that because we remember. I mean, what if I told you today that Adolf Hitler is now in heaven with God? And I could show you that by a videotape where he confesses his sins and God grants him forgiveness. You might acknowledge it as true, but if you were one who suffered and your family suffered under his regime, you wouldn't like it. Let's be honest. Yet, the abners of this world are not too far away from the grace of God. And this is where we have wrestling matches. There are people that have done things against us that we would love to be able to, if we could, and no one knew about it, get revenge. And our hearts have been turned by their sin against us so that we now are thinking sinfully about them rather than praying for God's will to be done, praying for their salvation, pray for his, his grace, and leaving it in God's hands. Not only is forgiveness something that forgives wickedness unconditionally, secondly, it repudiates vengeance completely. David is quick to oppose Joab's sinful vengeance. He doesn't waste any time. He uses an expression that, wouldn't, uh, that he wouldn't take lightly. Verse 28, afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Now David had heard the same expression at a moment when David was full of emotion and battle frenzy and he was heading down to destroy a man by the name of Nabal. But there was this wife of Nabal by the name of Abigail who came out to meet him. And with her tenderness and with her wisdom, she was able to placate the situation. And here's what she said. The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving um, and from saving uh, I don't have it written down properly here. But he was saving you from blood guilt. In other words, he was on his way to do something that he didn't have not any, any right to do. And by her actions, she was saving him from living with the consequences of that sin. And now David, when Joab is sinning, when Joab is in rebellion, he is distancing himself from Joab rightly. And this new king is declaring that he is free from any liability for Joab's offense and its consequences. This was not David's idea and solely the actions of Joab himself. And so it should not be considered that this is how this new king is going to be. Joab's way was not the way of God's chosen king. See, Joab's way can be likened to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he do? He pulled out the sword from his sheath when the soldiers came, and Jesus said, uh-uh, uh-uh, put your sword away into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? 
It also reminds us of what 2 Corinthians 4.2 says. This is Paul talking about the cause of Christ, that it cannot be advanced either by disgraceful or underhanded ways or cunningly tampering with the word of God. There are right attitudes that we are supposed to have. We, we, we distance ourselves from these underhanded ways. And here David is saying, no, 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 no. This is not the way of this king. This is not the way of this kingdom. This is not what it's going to be like. This is the beauty of forgiveness. Now, friends, you, you and I know, you know, in our particular context in this world right now, one of the things that we are frustrated with oftentimes is the kind of stuff, atrocities that take place around the world, but people are not willing to distance themselves from them. Here is the king who says, that was not right. This did not honor God and I distanced myself from him. I am not responsible. I am not guilty. They are fully guilty for their own actions. But not only that, it mourns injustice genuinely. And this is where we really have to get into the heart of David. We really have to recognize that when David says to Abner early on, I am making a covenant with you. I am forgiving you. I am sending you away in peace. It's not simply di diplomacy speaking. There is a genuineness here. There's a covenant made between those two people so that when David finds out that Abner is dead, he is genuinely bothered. He's genuinely now mourning his death. Notice verse 31. There's a public mourning that is established here. And David said to Joab and to all the people who are with him, talking here about Joab and his men who had just come back from the spoils of war, he says, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. So David institutes this public mourning, but he specifically instructs Joab, along with all the people who are with him, to be the ones who are walking in front of the actual funeral procession, which was, friends, forcing Joab and his men to mourn publicly by, by virtue of doing that, demonstrating that he acted on his own and not out of loyalty to the king. This was an incredible humiliation that David put on Joab and his men for their actions, for their behavior. It was a public mourning, but it was also a royal funeral. So Joab and his men in front of the funeral procession, and then we have David, who we're told follows right behind it says, and King David followed the buyer. See, David here is an, is an example by his actions. He is there to be seen in this royal funeral in a prominent place, following the procession, following the buyer. And then it says, they buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And so here we have the, the, some, some things I think that are important for us to realize here about this royal funeral. Notice where David chose to walk. That was right behind the buyer, right? The prominent place. Secondly, where David chose to bury Abner was not back in Mahanan. It was there in Hebron. And then by his mourning, by his weeping, by his actions, by the genuineness of his grief, he is an example to everyone who was there. But not only that, 
David is an example by his words. Again, these were not just words for diplomacy. These are words that David truly meant. Look at verse 33. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. He's basically saying here that Joab used deceit and treated him like a fool. He didn't treat him like a friend of David at all. He used deception and goodwill to entrap him, to murder him. And so now David, by even this song, exposes not only his grief for Abner, but also Joab's actions to be wicked. And then we finally see here that there's a personal fast. And David is not willing to take Abner's death lightly. He's a man of integrity who has lost a friend. Now again, it may be hard for us to jump into this text and see that Abner is now a friend because we're so blinded by his previous behavior. But friends, this is what happens by God's grace. He takes those who are enemies. He takes those who are rebellious. He takes those who are doing everything they can to undermine the wishes of the king. And through a covenant on a cross, grants forgiveness and establishes peace. That's what he does. We may like it, we may not like it, but that is what he does. And that's what he's done for you, and that's what he's done for me. Now, that all being true, this has led us now to this focal point, this arrowhead, this, this opportunity to see this revenge just on display has given us an opportunity to see God's forgiveness in all of its beauty. But now I want you to notice as we turn to these last few verses, verses 36 through 39, we're getting to the heart of the matter. In verse 36, the people took notice. In verse 37, they understood. In verse 38, they knew something about this new king. Richard Phillips reminds us that David, through his sacrificial commitment to peace among God's people, is a fitting forerunner of his greater descendant, Jesus Christ, who was foretold as the true Prince of Peace. And so now, the character of God's chosen king is revealed. Walter Chantry sums it up well, saying, In the midst of all the shameful deeds of Abner and Joab, God was establishing an ancestor of Christ upon a throne unlike those of other kingdoms. This thorn would endure, or this throne, I should say, would endure forever and would be used to save multitudes and nations from their sin. And so we're going to look at five character qualities of King David that are a foreshadowing of David's descendant, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. And David, of course, will remain an imperfect king. Jesus, of course, the Messiah, will be the perfect king. Still, this imperfect king, David, and his character is on display for us to be a foreshadowing of who this this wonderful Messiah King will be. Now we're still telling the story 
We're telling the story now through a lens of God's revelation of this king. First of all, he is a good king. He's a good king. Verse 36, and all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, and everything that the king did pleased the people. Behind the words translated pleased are two Hebrew words for good. In other words, to say that it pleased them meant it was good in their eyes. What the people saw on that day was the goodness of their king. It, it, in, in comparison to the king that they have just had, in comparison to the oppressors that were over them, we have a good king. They didn't see a wicked king acting and thinking only for himself without regard for his people. No, they saw a good king who was committed to peace, to justice, and forgiveness. When we think about Jesus, we think about encounters that he had. The rich young ruler, if you remember, came to Jesus on his knees asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he saw something different in Jesus, and so he addresses him as good master. And here's how Jesus responds. Why do you call me good? There is none good except God alone. Which, friends, was a revelation statement. It is Jesus who begins a good work in us, Philippians 1 says. And goodness is a quality that every disciple must pursue as his or her goal. Pastors are to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. All of us are called to be good people who out of a good heart produce good fruit. And Paul reminds us in his letter to the Colossians the following words, Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Look, he is a good king. And Christ, this is not proper English, is a gooder king. And followers of that gooder king are also to be people whose character is marked by goodness. Secondly, not only is he a good king, but he is an innocent king. Look at verse 37. He is an innocent king. So all the people and all Israel understood. So they took notice. Now they're understanding that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. Now notice the fullness of inclusion in the narrator's statement. All the people and all Israel. All the people. It's used seven times since verse 31. It refers to those who were with David at that particular point in time. So all the people who had witnessed the funeral procession and the humiliation of Joab. But then we have all Israel. These are all the people who may not have been present, but heard and so understood that David was a good king. Get this. The good news of the good king had been broadcast all over Israel so that all the people knew that their king was good and was innocent. 
But he had no part to play in Abner's death. Now as we think about Jesus, in a different sense, Jesus is on display for us in the Gospels as one who is without fault. Yet, even though they could find no fault in him, he hung on a cross for crimes he did not commit. He was innocent. He was unjustly accused. He was unjustly treated. He was unjustly crucified. Even even Judas, in his grief, as he rushes back to the religious leadership who had paid for him to betray Jesus, he says this, I have betrayed innocent blood. And then, at the end of the day of Christ's crucifixion, the centurion who had been standing there all day long as it would be his normal shift, he observed all the events of the day and he praises God and says, certainly this man was innocent. Now friends, we are called to live a life where our innocence shines brightly. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So our innocence, our integrity is to radiate in this twisted and crooked generation. He's an innocent king, and Jesus is a completely innocent king. And we are to flesh out that integrity. Oh, we are imperfect. We, we can never say we are innocent before God, but we can say we have been forgiven. And when we have sinned, we can say, you are right. Please forgive me and restore things in a way it would honor God and certainly reflect that restoration among the people because we're willing to stand with the truth of the gospel even when we sin. So he's a good king. He's an innocent king. Not only that, he is a gracious king. He's a gracious king. Look at verse 38. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince... A great man has fallen this day in Israel. Now David is speaking to a smaller group of people here, but he wants them to know something very, very important, that Abner was a prince and a great man. Now there are many things that that David could have said about the character of Abner, and he he would have been true in his statements. He could have reminded his servants that Abner was a servant of Saul, that Abner had rebelled against him as king, that that Abner's passions involved in inciting wars and assuming control over Israel. But rather than that, David is gracious with his words, isn't he? He calls Abner a prince, maybe more properly a commander. He calls Abner a great man. David had graciously forgiven Abner And he sent him away in peace. And now Abner is honored as a prince, as a a great man. These are all titles Abner doesn't deserve. 
But David has chosen to give him honor for what he is today rather than to remind the people about the wicked man that he had been in the past. And this is how Jesus treats us, isn't it? He doesn't keep us pigeonholed in the sin that marked our past. No, Paul tells us clearly what Christ's grace has done for us. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and just take in what Paul tells us in this passage. It's so significant, it's so helpful, it's so necessary to our walk with God as well as our understanding of who we are in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and following. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, here's the key word, were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is your past. That's who you were. But now you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. And by the, by the way, friends, these three things all took place in one moment at the point in time when you responded to the gospel by repenting. You were thoroughly cleansed, washed. You were seen now in Christ as completely holy, sanctified. You were fully restored to fellowship with God, justified, declared right with God. All three realities happened and are true for everyone who is here today who is a follower of Christ. This is who you are. And you don't deserve it. And neither do I. And oftentimes, when we fail, when we struggle with our position in Christ, we wonder whether we are still clean. And the reality is, you are. Because one is emphasizing your position in Christ, God has also called us now, as followers of his, to live out of that position in Christ and that's why Paul calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean this is we need to work out be, you know, this, this, this repentance in order to uh, enter the family of God. This is because you are one of God's children. He's, he's calling you to live your life in such a way now that you are living out what you are. It's what Paul also calls exercising ourselves toward godliness. It's what we call becoming like Christ or the pursuit of of holiness. We have already been declared these things, but now we are in our Christian walk to, to, to live our lives with the reality of what God has declared that we already are. Christ's grace has reconciled us to God and called us sons and daughters. And now we're children in the family of God. But now we're called to live out of that relationship in such a way that reflects our family name. If you're a Christian, God's saying, live out of that reality. And friends, this is so helpful for us to go back to a passage like 1 Corinthians 
to say, I know I'm tainted now with, with mud, but the reality is when God looks down through the lens of Christ, I'm washed. Because we can pick up mud really easy, right? We can pick up sin really easy, but God is no longer holding that against you as far as your eternity is concerned. Now, friends, that's good news for us. And we get that mixed up. And we get our Christian walk mixed up. So he is a good king. He's an innocent king. He is a a gracious king. And we have been the recipients of, of Christ's grace in our lives. But not only that, he's a gentle king. He's a gentle king. There's clearly a comparison going on in this passage. It says in verse 39, And I was gentle today, though anointed king. In other words, as a king, I have authority to act and, and to do things how I desire, but I was gentle today. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. He's, more, he's gentle compared to the, the sons of Zariah. So David, while, while waiting for God to establish him as king, did not choose violence as a means by which he would accomplish that end. He had the opportunity on a number of occasions to seal the deal, so to speak, to respond violently and to, to reach the throne by killing Saul, but he chose not to. And those around him were like shaking their heads. Why? But David continues this path of gentleness. And today in dealing with Abner, David has chosen to be gentle rather than severe. You see, Jesus, he, he's the picture of the most gentle and meek person that I think anyone knows. In fact, you ask most people, what is Jesus like? They think of, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, right? He receives the little children that come to him and allows them to sit on his lap and he blesses them. He refuses to raise his sword in the garden of Gethsemane. He is the healer of diseases and one who cares for the poor. Yes, all that is true, but, but gentleness is simply one of his attributes that we are to admire. When Jesus acts justly, he will speak and men will die because of their rebellion against him. He will be the one who judges the world justly and that judgment will include the exercising of his wrath and casting people into the lake of fire. That's all true about the character of who he is. Now, having said that, let us not neglect the fact that he is gentle. <laughs> he is gentle. He is a gentle king. He's not fickle. He's not abusive. He truly cares for his children. And we as his disciples are called to be gentle in the same way. Now, I woke up this morning horrified, having had a dream in which I was confronting someone with the truth of the gospel. Don't worry, I'm not, God didn't speak to me in this dream or anything like that, okay? But you ever wake up from a dream just like, <sighs> if you remember anything about it? I was horrified. Because in my dream, what I remember is this, that I was, I was talking to someone who was like a cultist, and I was, I was t showing them how they were wrong but I was screaming at him. I was angry. 
And I was spewing out scripture. I don't know why God had me do that, except for it reminded me of how it, this would fit here. The manner by which we exercise gentleness would not be that. When you and I get caught up in this political world and we're ready to scream verses at people is the moment we've stepped way beyond the gentleness that God has called us to. I may have, in my dream, given the right content, but the manner was what, what, what horrified me. See, it's the manner and the attitude of the fruit of the Spirit that will help us to be what called us, God has called us to be. It's, it's the attitude of this, this gentleness that is, is what is necessary to restore a brother or sister who has been overtaken in a sin. That's Galatians 6.1. This idea of gentleness is one of the marks Paul stresses in Ephesians 4, 1 through 4, which is that transition passage that moves out of the theology into the practice and says this is to be evident in a church that wants to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. We are to be gentle. And gentleness is a mark of one who desires to be an elder in the church. And it's a characteristic of the kind of wisdom that comes from above. See, our king is gentle, and we as his subjects should reflect that. Not only that, he is a submissive king. He's a submissive king. This last statement, we could just breeze by, but, but hear this. It says, the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. This is David speaking now. Joab has been guilty and David is not responding to Joab's guilt here, but instead, what is he doing? Just as he had done with respect to Saul, David looked to the Lord now to work out his or the Lord's justice in the matter. He, tr he trusted that the Lord would do what is right in his own time and in his own way. Now think about this. David was submitting now to the Lord to mete out whatever is necessary for Joab. Jesus let go of his grip of heaven to conform to the plan that he was a part of, the plan of the Godhead. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He, he took upon himself the likeness of men. He humbled and submitted in his birth, in his life, in his death. He was willing to be persecuted. He was willing to be mocked and scorned. He was willing to suffer the painful death of crucifixion. That was his submission to God's will, his submission to the plan. And we as his disciples are also called to do the will of our king, to deny ourselves and give up our rights, to take up the cross daily, to be willing to take on the shame and identify ourselves with Christ, and then to follow him, to do his will, to do his bidding for his glory. And Paul summarizes those same ideas in his letter to the Romans. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I'm sure you know it very well. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Now, friends, hear this. David was to be a king unlike the kings of the nations around them. And if you've been with us as we've been studying through First and Second Samuel, you'll understand how significant that statement is. Dave, or Jesus would be a king unlike any had known before. And we're called to be people unlike the nations who are transformed by Jesus Christ, who can discern the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let me leave you with two thoughts as we flow out of this, this passage. Number one, the promises of God are sure. Isn't that good news? I mean, just over and over again, God reinforces this principle. Who can undermine the promises of God? No one. No one. They might seem huge to you. They might seem so overwhelming and powerful. It might seem that the church is imploding and it's being kicked out or things are happening. God's promise will always take place. You can be sure of that. Secondly, the attributes of God are pure. He is good. He's innocent. He's gracious, he's gentle, he's submissive. It is this King Jesus. This is what he's like. It is this King Jesus that rules his kingdom. Worship him. Listen to him. Obey him. Love him. Trust him. Lord, we've come this morning to this passage asking, Lord, for your help. And I pray, Lord, that as we have seen your hand at work through even Joab's revenge, that, that what is burning on our heart is how incredibly awesome you are. How beautiful, how Beyond us, Lord, you are. You truly are good. You truly are innocent. You truly are gracious and gentle and submissive, Lord. And there's so much to learn about you. As Israel began to, to know and to understand and to take notice of their new king, Lord, may we continue with amazement, Lord, as we as we are reinforced, Lord, with our understanding of who you are. And Lord, as we know you, may our lives reflect, may they be a, a mirror, Lord, of your attributes, your character through us as we seek to live our lives for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for this section of Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for being our God. Thank you for giving us the gospel to spread the good news about what you have done for us on the cross. We praise you now and ask, Lord, that you would take all that has been said this morning to strengthen us, to mold us, and to shape us to be like your son, Jesus Christ, in your precious name. Amen.